I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis 18. Book of Genesis, chapter 18. We're moving along in the life of Abraham and Sarah, the uh, parents of the nation of Israel, as we could call them from the Old Testament. It's interesting that we started our series in Genesis chapter 12. By the time you get to Genesis 18, 25 years have passed since the giving of the original promise. Okay, Abraham and Sarah are an awful lot like every one of us. It's why their lives are recorded in such detail. The, the good things, the bad things, the different things, the ugly things, they're all recorded. But one of the lessons that I think we can learn from this passage of Scripture, particularly as we look at it, is in seasons of delay, okay, when there's been a promise made and the fulfillment of that promise is suspended, it, 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 it seems unlikely that it will be fulfilled. What happens? Okay, what happens to most of us is that we drift into an attitude, a disposition of doubt towards God. Our faith begins to weaken and we, we wonder if the promises of God are going to come to fruition, if we're going to experience the fullness of those promises. We can struggle. Faith can weaken and we battle with doubt that ultimately is doubt about God. Right? Because the promises come from God, we place faith in the promises, and if the promises don't come through, who do we doubt? We doubt the one that made the promises. So this is where we as Christians wrestle. It's where Abraham and Sarah are wrestling, waiting to see the fulfillment of the promises of God. So as we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 18, it says that the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre. Now that statement, the Lord appeared to Abraham, is going to clarify for you what's going on with this group of three men that meet Abraham. Okay? By the time you get to Genesis 19, verse 1, you'll find that two of them are angels. One of them is God in human form. Some people prefer to call this a theophany, a manifestation of God in human form, or it is a what some call a Christophany. Okay? An appearance of Christ prior to the incarnation in human form. Okay, so the text kind of falls down one of those two directions. Here's what we do know, that the word, name, title, Lord, is ascribed to him by Abraham and by the speaker himself. Okay, so there is an, a divine encounter in this text to Abraham and Sarah during a season where they need affirmation from God about the promises. So the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent. Quick, he said, get three sayas of flour, of fine flour and knead it and make some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to his servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds of milk, and that's the part that gets all of our attention here this morning, right? He brought some curds of milk 
and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them while they ate, he stood under a tree. It's an amazing passage of scripture. I want to work our way through this this morning. I, this, the place that Abraham meets these men is under the great trees of Mamre. If you go back to chapter 13, you know what you'll find? You'll find that when Abraham came to the land of promise, he camped in the area of the trees of Mamre. 25 years later, where is Abraham? Okay, Abraham is at the place that God told him to go, and he is there waiting for God to fulfill his promise. So I think it's one beautiful aspect. The place he stayed where God had put him. Time of the day in this setting is in the heat of the day. In the, in, in the Near Eastern cultures, midday is just flat out too hot to work. So what most of the people do in that culture, get up very early in the morning and work, take a siesta in the afternoon, and then finish out the work towards the latter part of the day when things begin to cool off. So we're at that time of a day. Abraham sees visitors, three men. Two are angels. One is the presence of God veiled in flesh. Okay, they've come close to Abraham. Now, what's fascinating is Abraham looks out and sees these strangers. Now, what most of us would do in our culture is we'd start calling some of the neighbors and say, do you know who that is? I'm suspicious about them. I'm wondering, what does Abraham notice here? He noticed that there is something of a divine, sovereign visit that is coming his direction. And what does he do? He immediately begins to ramp up the gift of hospitality. He sees the need that is present and he desires a visit with them. So he goes out and he welcomes them and invites this, if you will, fellowship. Now I want you to notice how he engages in this setting. First, he goes out to them. There's eagerness. Secondly, he bows low to the ground, which is an indication of what? Or an indication of respect, of honor, of homage, of some kind. So he's recognizing that there is something special about these visitors. In verse 3, he identifies them as him as my Lord. And I love what he says. Do not pass your servant by. Do not pass me by. Where is Abraham? He's 25 years down the road in this walk with God. And you know what he's still craving? You know what he's still desiring? He's still desiring the personal presence of God. He wants to enjoy fellowship with God. And then what's fascinating is you go through verses 4 through 7. It says he goes through kind of this frenzied invitation. He gives them an invitation to come to dinner with him. Starts getting things underway. And then he realizes what? And this has happened to me a number of times. He realizes he forgot to tell his wife. Okay? So what does he do? He then goes inside, lets her in on the story, and they, he and his team begin to get together a glorious meal. He provides for some of the natural needs in the heat of a day after walking, water, a place to wash their feet, those sorts of things. But he doesn't stop there with just minimal things. He goes into providing for this divine visit, a glorious and beautiful meal. He is generous with God. There's a lavish meal, a calf, bread, and milk curds are brought out. The milk curds part, I'll tell you, I don't get real excited about that. Not even exactly sure what it is. Maybe something like cottage cheese, which would be very common in that culture. Bread, some meat, okay, that kind of gets, gets us going, gets us started thinking about it's a good meal. And that's what Abraham's kind of getting together for these men. Not out of duty but out of delight. God has come. Abraham is desirous of an intimate encounter 
with God. And then I love what verse 8 says. After verse 6, hurrying, verse 7, running, and then hurrying again to prepare it, verse 8 says, he stood near them under a tree. Fascinating picture, isn't it? Abraham is set at a meal before them, and then he stands nearby. And if you go back into the original language a little bit, what you start to uncover is the idea is that he is waiting there for an opportunity to serve. Okay, he's, he's being a waiter. He's attending to the needs of this meal. And here's what's fascinating to me. This is a man that has 318 men that he could get together to go out to war back a few chapters, right? And in this setting, what is he doing? Abraham is standing by, watching over this meal, and he has put himself in the place of a servant. What's going on here? Okay, what is Abraham doing? Abraham is practicing good old-fashioned hospitality. Okay, that's what he's doing. Something that the Old Testament and the New Testament encourages very strongly. Romans 12, 13. Share with God's people in need. Practice hospitality. Hebrews 13.2 is the verse that's interesting here. Okay, Hebrews 13.2 says, don't forget to entertain strangers. Okay, now if, if you go back and you look at what does the word hospitality means? The word hospitality means love for strangers. That's what hospitality means. Okay, what is Abraham doing? He is loving strangers. Hebrews 13.2 says this, be careful to entertain strangers... Because when you do it, you may be entertaining or serving angels without even knowing it. Okay, fascinating. Abraham has this visit. He picks up on what's going on and he unleashes his resources to encourage this scene of this fellowship with God. Now, if God is coming to Abraham, what does that tell you about God? Okay, God's coming to a servant. What does it tell you about God? God desires and is eager for fellowship with Abraham. He's eager for fellowship with us. In Abraham's response, what do you learn about Abraham? Abraham is eager for fellowship with God. And as a result, what does he do? He, he just, he, in, in this kind of frenzied moment, he just, all, all decorum is lost. Men in that world didn't run, especially older men of influence. What does Abraham do? He's hurrying. He's rushing people. He's telling his wife to get things ready. Why? Because he's so excited about the fact that this encounter is divine. God is eager to meet with Abraham. Abraham is eager to meet with God. You see it in his response. Okay, here's the question that I would put before you this morning, just from this portion. God is eager to meet with you. Are you eager to meet with him? Okay, do you plan your life around opportunities to enjoy fellowship with God, encouragement with God, time with Him? The fact that He comes to Abraham tells us that He has a, a mission, a purpose, a desire to do something for Abraham. And when He comes to Abraham, He finds a man who is eager for fellowship. Now, the other thing that's fascinating about this text is this. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that people put meals before God on a number of occasions. Most of the time, what happens to the meal? You know what happens? Usually, God calls down fire and it consumes the meal and it's received as a sacrifice. This is different. In this case, God sits down with the angels in human form and they partake of this meal. Only time it happens in the Old Testament. 
Okay, and in Isaiah, here's what's fascinating. It says that God speaks about Abraham and says, Abraham, my what? You know the word? My friend. Okay, what is God doing? God is engaging with Abraham. Abraham is engaging with God. And as they together grow in intimacy, what happens? This relationship transforms into something that is glorious and beautiful. God was eager to seek a relationship with Abraham. Abraham was eager to seek a relationship with God and was willing to put everything on the table to be a blessing to God. It's a fascinating thing. It's a fascinating thing. When is this meal with God celebrated again? You know when it happens? It happens with Jesus. He prepares a table for his disciples. And eats with them. Move forward one large step, Revelation chapter 3. Okay, what does the word of God say? Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Which is to say what? Jesus is eager for fellowship with his church. And you know what he says? He says, if anyone will open the door, I will come in and what? Eat with him and he with me. Okay, I, I can't help but see connections between what's happening with Abraham and this interaction with God and what is happening with us and our interaction with Christ. It's a divine encounter that is meant to mutually encourage. Jesus comes seeking to save that which is lost. What does he want us to do? He wants us to go after him and seek fellowship with him. Okay, and that's this beautiful means by which Abraham becomes this friend of God. An imperfect man who has blown it on a number of occasions. We've seen that. But what does God do? God comes seeking him. Why? He wants to encourage his heart in relationship to the promises that are looking less likely to be fulfilled. And so Abraham engages with God in this beautiful text. And we find an echo forward into the book of Revelation. Now, the first lesson that emerges from this text then I think is something like this. God understands what we're going through. He understands the struggles. He understands that in the midst of the delays that we face in our life, we may face seasons of doubt. What does God do? Does he stand at a distance, launch bombs of rebuke against us? No. You know what he does? He comes near. Why? Because he is honored when we trust him. And what does he do? He brings us as his children to a place where our faith is increased. 25 years waiting for the promise. Abraham is starting to do what all of us would do. We experience seasons of doubt. What does God do? He comes to fellowship with Abraham and visits him in the season of doubt. Now what happens next is fascinating and I think gives a little more insight into who the visitors are. Verse 9 he says, Where is your wife, not Sarai, the old name, but where is your wife, Sarah, the new name? Where is, the, and the word literally means the princess. God's saying to him, hey, where's the princess? And, and, and the, the idea literally becomes something like this. She's the one that royal offspring is going to come from. So Abraham would then know that these visitors, if, if he's not totally clued into the fact that this is God, which I think he is, but if he's not, this gives him further insight to who they are. They know Sarah and they know the promises of God that rest upon her life. Okay, and this, what, what does God do? When God says, where is the princess, the mother of royalty, where is she? What is God doing? God's raising the issue of tension. But God's not hiding from the struggle that Abraham is facing. He instead brings it right onto the table. Where is your wife, Sarah? 
there in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. This is an amazing statement. Okay? Why? This is the issue of tension. This is the issue that has caused problems for Abraham and Sarah. And God goes directly to it. And the question I want to ask is this. Why does God, in this context, visit Abraham and Sarah? What's the purpose of this visit? Is it to raise the issue again and then leave with it unfulfilled, with no words of encouragement, just to see how he's doing? What's the purpose of the visit? Why does God engage us in our lives? Why does he come into our lives through various circumstances? I think the answer to that question is in verse 10. I will surely return to you about this time next year, and your wife will have a son. Now the non-specific has become date certain. Do you see? What has God done? God has said to Abraham, you've waited 25 years. Now is the time for, for, for the fulfillment of that promise. What happens? In the delay, we get agitated. We get antsy. We get weak in our faith. And God comes in these circumstances. I believe he comes to reassure and to communicate his love and commitment to Abraham. He wants to enjoy fellowship with him. And what is he saying? Abraham, I have not given up on you. His desire, I believe, is to encourage their faith, to encourage them to hang on and to trust God because God is about to bring to full fruition the difficult, unbelievable, seemingly impossible promises that he has made to them. I will return at this time and Sarah, princess, will give birth to a son. Very, very beautiful picture. So the purpose of this visit is to encourage and to reassure. Second question that comes out is this. And it's found in the response of Sarah to this. So where is Sarah? Sarah's standing at the door of the tent. And Abraham's out there with three people. And what is Sarah doing? You're doing what all of us tend to want to do, right? Abraham's out there with those three guys. He's standing under the tree and she's like peeking out occasionally. And, And she's trying to get what's going on. Okay, so she stands at the door of the tent. They're talking and interacting. And... She's listening to what happens, and she hears the reiteration of the promise in verse 10. Verse 10 goes on to say, Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Okay, so she's not seen. Her responses aren't seen, but her responses are known. Okay, and that becomes the odd twist here. That becomes the divine, if you will, light here, picture of God. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. That's just the historical footnote that Moses writes in here. Okay, Abraham's too old to have children. Sarah's past the possibility of having children. That's when this promise comes. So, verse 12 tells us Sarah's response to the statement and observation, if you will, from the divine visitors. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought. Okay, so she's, she's listening to what's going on. She hears that and she's like, oh my word, it's that again. And she starts thinking to herself, and I just love the way this text lays this out. She laughed to herself as she thought. Okay, what kind of laughter is this? Is this the laughter of amazement? What do you think? Is she saying, wow, he's finally going to do it. 
Oh, you know what this is? This is the, the laughter of doubt. And I'm going to use a stronger word because I think it starts to get on the edge of that because doubt is a sin that often we harbor towards God. I think there's a degree of cynicism. Okay, because that can creep into our hearts towards God too, can it? In seasons of delay and doubt where we're, we're questioning, is this ever going to happen? Will this promise ever be fulfilled? She laughed as she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure, this privilege, this honor of giving birth to a child? It, this promise for Sarah has slipped into a certain category. Okay, It's not slipped into the category of unlikely. Okay, it has slipped into the category of the impossible. Okay, and that's how, as she describes what she's saying, I'm as good as dead, Abraham is good as dead, in relationship to what? In relationship to having offspring. It's, it, is, it is beyond thinkable, it would require something paranormal and miraculous. And so for her, she, it, it, she laughs, she's like, right, right. And, and, and she's dialoguing internally in her mind with this. What's happening? I think there is a practical objection on Sarah's part. It's just based on the scientific facts. We're past that. That can't happen anymore. That's the, that's the picture. Distrust based upon a human assessment of a divine promise. That always gets us into trouble. The uniqueness of the situation has caused her to think this is too good to be true. It's been 25 years of waiting. It hasn't happened yet, so I don't think it's going to happen. That's where Sarah is. That's the practical objection, if you will, to this promise from God. But there is also a spiritual objection here. Okay? When Sarah responds to this promise, what, what plane is she looking on? Is she looking on this plane or this plane? Is she viewing things from a horizontal, God-centered perspective or from a human perspective? I think the answer to the question is very easy. She's looking at, at, she's adding things up on a calculator and saying, it just can't happen. It's beyond doable. As I studied this, I thought of the Gospels. Thought of the circumstances where people come to Jesus. Jesus says to them, do you believe? Because belief and trust in God is what honors him. Okay, people would come to Jesus and they would say, Jesus said, do you believe? And what did the one man say? It's a fascinating statement. He says, Lord, I believe. But help my unbelief. Okay, it's, look, in, in seasons of delay, it is natural for us to experience seasons of doubt. It is natural for us to have questions rising up. And if we look at them from the horizontal plane, we look simply at human issues and, human, and look for human solutions, what happens? We lose faith and we become people that doubt. And in that doubt, we're sinning against God. Why? Hebrews 11.1 1 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Okay, so Sarah is drifting into, can we be honest and say, we totally understand what she's doing, but can we also be honest and say that when we do that, it is sin? That doubt does not honor God? Doubt actually draws the character of God into question? It says what he is able to do and what he is unable to do. It assesses him in a way that is purely human and fails him to take into account the glorious power of God. And so God is, is going, he's going to tease Sarah out on this. He's not, because he loves her, he's not going to let it go. And so he comes to her, and, and, it, and it's, it, it's just, it's fascinating to see this. God's response 
to her struggle, to her wrestling. Verse 13, it's first directed towards Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say? And Abraham's probably thinking, I didn't hear her say that. She didn't, she wouldn't think, she wouldn't say that. Right? And Sarah's later going to say, I didn't say that. Why? Because she's thinking, I was out of earshot, so therefore he couldn't hear me laugh, so I have plausible deniability, so I'm going to deny it. I'm going to say it never happened. I'm going to say I didn't say that. And so God first goes to Abraham, I believe in a sense, as the head of the home. He says, why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child now that I am old? Some commentators have speculated this. The promise of chapter 17 that was rehearsed to Abraham at the 25, 24 and a half year mark was never passed on to Sarah by Abraham. And so God says to Abraham, Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And the speculation is, did he not tell her because he was afraid of the consequences of the belittlement that you're still trusting God for that? Ever have that happen? Wait, you're still, you're still walking with him? You're still trusting him in spite of the circumstances in your life? Struggles, difficulties, you're still trusting him? God in his mercy and grace comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? God's response to weak faith, and I just, let me just lay out these are just basic principles. Number one is this. God reads Sarah's mind. She laughed to herself and thought. So she has this internal dialogue that God is not unaware of. Folks, here's what we think. If I keep the sin internal, especially the sin of doubt, then it doesn't offend God. Well, you know what? Doubt harbored against a friend hurts that friend, whether it is expressed or not. It does. Abraham was a friend of God. And God was, if I use the word hurt, you might, you might say, okay, I don't know if God could be hurt. Okay, but can I tell you this? The book of Ephesians tells us not to grieve the Spirit of God. And the idea is to injure and to wound by unbelief or by sin in our lives. And so what is God doing for Abraham and Sarah? He's calling them out. He's counseling them. He's interrogating them. Why? So that they will come to the end of this doubt and begin to trust God for amazing and enormous promises. So he reads her mind. And the verse that came to my mind as I read this was this. All things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we must do. Everything's open. So, folks, can I say this to you? Can I encourage you? Bear your mind, your heart, your soul to God. Whatever word you want to use, bear it to God. That's what the psalmist says. He says, I take my problems like a cup and I pour them out before God. There's no benefit in harboring it, in wrestling with it internally. Put it before God. He, reads you. he already knows what's there. And it is a blessing for you to come to Him and say, God, I am wrestling with doubt. I am wrestling with the temptation. I am wrestling with the struggle in my life. Okay, it's, He sees what's going on. Everything, my thoughts, my words, my deeds, before they go out, they're already open to God. So he reads her mind. Then he confronts her doubt slash sin. Okay, he knows that Abraham is struggling. He knows that she is struggling. But what does he do? Does he stand back and say, oh, that's okay? No, you know what he does? He confronts them in the midst of their doubt. He's not going to let you, as his child, hang out in that place of fear and unbelief. 
Why? Because as a Christian, what are you? By the Spirit, you are a believer. You're a person that trusts God, and God's going to call you back to that place by the power of His Spirit. This unbelief and doubt that are an affront to God are challenged by His restorative love. Okay, what is God doing? He's saying, Abraham, no, this really is going to happen. Twice in this discussion, he reiterates the promise. First to Abraham, then to Sarah. What I promised, I will fulfill. God's not backing down. And here's the thing I think is so cool. Even though it is absolutely impossible, God refuses to alter the plan. To deliver himself from something that maybe he can't do. He doesn't alter the plan. He doesn't acquiesce to their fears. And give in to their desires. No. He calls them to trust him to do what he is able to do. So he confronts their doubt and sin. And then in verse 14. Which is I think the center of this text. He reminds her of his power. Okay. Notice what he says. Verse 14. Will I really now have a child now that I am old? God's response is this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? This, what is it? It's God, God's argument in response to our doubt and our fears. You know what it is? Is anything too hard for me? That when you're wrestling with doubt, you're wrestling with fears, concerns in your life, what is God saying? Is there anything too hard for me? The answer to that question obviously is what? No. Does anything appear to be too hard for God? All the time. Okay. Right? That's, that's where we wrestle. What we know God can do and what we really believe God's going to do. There's a gap sometimes between those two things. And what does God do? He gives her the ultimate argument, the ultimate question. Okay, Sarah. Okay, Abraham. Is there anything too difficult? And the word literally is anything too wonderful, too glorious, too majestic, too phenomenal for God to do it. Okay, is there anything that fits into that category? The answer to that is very clear. Why does God make this statement to Sarah? Is it to rebuke her? Is it to belittle her? I think the answer is none of the above. I think the reason that God throws out this challenge is that he aims to encourage rock-solid faith and to humble us. Okay, he aims to do two things. To encourage us in our faith and to humble us. To keep us low so that we're not demanding of God and, and accusing God but that we come seeking His timing and His purposes. And He doesn't alter, He doesn't retreat from the plan that He has made. Instead, He pushes us down the path of impossibility. That's what He's doing. He restates the promise. Why? He's drawing them towards it. He's not retreating, He's not going away from it. As you think about this, it causes me to jump forward to another birth. That was impossible. Luke chapter 1 and verse 31, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. And what does he say to her? Behold, well, first, the first thing he says to her is what? Do not be afraid. I think probably the most oft-repeated command in the Bible. Okay, why? Because we all have a tendency to go down this road to doubt the provision, the power, and goodness of God. Okay, it's just, we have a natural default that when things aren't going the way we want them to go, we're asking, does he really love me? Does he really care? Can he really do this? Those are the kinds of questions that run through our minds. Angel comes to Gabriel says, or to, uh, Gabriel comes to Mary and says, first off, Mary, don't be afraid because this is going to rock your world. And what does he say? He says, behold, you will be with child and bear a son. 
And what's Mary's response? How, how could that be? <laughs> Why? Because she knows that she has kept herself morally and physically pure. And so her response is, how could that ever happen? And then God goes through and he says, the Spirit of God is going to come upon you. You be with child by the Holy Ghost. And then this statement, verse 37, which I think is clearly an echo from Genesis 18. With God, nothing will be impossible. And may we give the response of Mary, I am the Lord's servant. Be it done unto me according to your will. Unbelievable promise that would require a miracle. Mary's response, are you serious? How could that happen? It would require the impossible, the miraculous. God's response, nothing is impossible with God. I think of this in relationship to salvation. The people that you would love to see come to know Christ personally, that you pray for and you wonder, can they ever be saved? The disciples asked a similar question, didn't they? The rich young ruler comes to Christ. What do we need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, first you need to keep the law. Secondly, what do you need to do? Sell everything you have. He does not want to part with his goods, which tells you his heart is not really fully devoted to keeping the law of God. And he goes away. And what did the disciples say? The disciples are like, they're stunned. A rich, blessed young ruler can't be converted. And their response is, who then can be what? Saved. Who can be saved? What is the response of Jesus? Same text is quoted. All things are possible with God. With men, this is impossible, but not with God. It is an echo of this exact promise that is meant to kill unbelief and to motivate us to be the people of faith that God wants us to be. What is God doing in these circumstances? God is confronting the doubt that that Sarah and Abraham have. Not saying that it's unreasonable, but saying that it is, in fact, sinful. And so he confronts it strongly and calls them to a higher and stronger walk. The last thing that he does for them is he reaffirms his promise. Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Answer, no. I will return to you at at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid. So she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said to her, yes, you did. Now, what's amazing to me here is this. God reaffirms his promise and provides an opportunity for Sarah to own her sin. Isn't that just like God? I mean, you would think after all the failures that Sarah and Abraham had, that God may say, you know what? I think I'm going to opt for plan B. I think I'm going to find some people that are more suitable, that are more faithful, that are stronger in their belief. That's not what God does. What does God do? He pursues them because they are his chosen people. And he's working them over and calling them and bringing them to faith. He doesn't let the fact that she laughed go by. And he doesn't let the fact that she lied go by. That she doubted him and then lied about the fact that that was present in her life. And so as the text unfolds, God says, Sarah laughed. Then God reiterates the promise, Sarah was afraid of what? Perhaps embarrassment? Perhaps of being exposed? And so what does she do? She says, I did not laugh. And I just love the, and it's the end of the text. You did laugh. End of discussion. Okay, what is God doing in that? You know what he's saying, Sarah? 
Sarah, own your sin. Confess it. Confess it. He doesn't set her aside. His aim is not to get rid of her. His aim is to purify her and to draw her into his presence. Psalm 86, verses 5 through 7, a passage that I've been working on memorizing. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all that call to you. In the day of my trouble, I will call to you, for you will answer me. Right? What does God say? Sarah, call to me and ask me to forgive you. I'm not going to let you drift off into this doubt and sin and unbelief. And so he calls her over and over. He works with her to restore her back into an appropriate place with him. He does not desire to set her aside. Now the question that emerges as we close this text is this. Is there hope for change? Do Abraham and Sarah ever finally really get it? Okay, does Abraham, is this a text in which Abraham is progressing or falling backward? Okay, I would say I think this is a text in which Abraham is what? He's experiencing some progress. This text for me is a brighter light. God comes, Abraham embraces, hears the promise of God and is encouraged. Okay, and, and, and at, at some point, something changes for Abraham. He becomes a stronger believer. Early on, he's a believer. He's saved by that faith, chapter 15. But something in his faith is growing. And 2,000 years later, the Apostle Paul will make this statement about Abraham. It says, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead in regards to childbearing. Since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet, Paul can say of Abraham, and this is what, this blows my mind. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. Well, see, that's, that kind of gives me bookends on the story of Abraham. He was a believer who wrestled, but in the end was committed to faith in God. And Abraham finally came to a point where he didn't waver. He went, I don't know if we should do this or not. No, let's do this. Let's honor God. Let's trust God to do the impossible and unthinkable. And you know what? That's what God does. That's what God does because Abraham and Sarah finally came to a place where they dared to believe, dared to trust God, dared to act on the promises, and saw the blessing of God fulfilled. And later Paul would say, man, Abraham struggled, but he never wavered in the sense of fully giving up on God. Folks, this morning, you may be wrestling. You may have a list of impossible things. I mean, certainly I think for Sarah... She had something on her list that was impossible. The impossible was that she would have a son. It just, it bothered her. She became cynical about it. She doubted it. She didn't believe it could happen. And there's no way you can look at the story and not say, I understand. And there's probably, for most of us, no way that we can look at the story and say, I've never done that. I think most of us have to say, you know what? We know what it is to wrestle with that. Wrestle with doubt, wrestle with unbelief, wrestle with whether things can change. All of us have a list of impossibilities. What obstacle, what seeming impossibility are you facing today that you don't think that God can fix? I mean, seriously. What's the issue that bangs around in your mind that haunts you that you don't think can ever change? What's the circumstance? What's the relationship? What's the financial concern? What's the work concern? 
that it looks like it'll never be resolved, at least not in the way that you want it to be. Will you trust Him? Will I trust Him? With that list of impossibles. And listen, folks, am I willing to go to my grave with some things that are unfulfilled, knowing that in His presence is fullness of joy and that the ultimate fulfillment awaits us? You see, we're called the glory ultimately. Here we have some of those blessings that come. What is God? You know what God's saying? Just trust me. And sometimes it means trusting Him with circumstances that we would never choose, that we ask Him to change, and He says, I'm not going to change it. Do you understand what I'm saying? First Corinthians chapter or Second Corinthians chapter twelve. Paul has that. He's got the circumstance that he wants to change. And you know what God says to Paul? Paul, I'm not changing it. And you know what I expect from you? I expect you to trust me and glorify me by that kind of trust. To glorify me by embracing the difficult situation. Because only then God could bring you through that and glorify himself through it. So sometimes we have to look at our lives and say, okay, what are the circumstances that I need to believe God to actually change? And I need to trust God with living in my life. Will you trust him? What's on your list? The breaking of a bad habit or addiction. The return of a struggling child, the change of your personal character, the need for new zeal for God, for boldness in sharing Jesus Christ, forgiving someone that has hurt you deeply, praying for a loved one to come to Christ, deliverance from discouragement, power to overcome temptation. Whatever it is, this is the promise of God. There is nothing too hard for Him. There is nothing that is impossible for God. And one of the ways that he, he authenticated that truth was by raising his son from the dead. Because in that, what did he do? He did the impossible. You know what Paul later says? Paul says, you know, the power that raised up Christ from the dead will one day quicken your mortal body. But see, if you know Christ, victory is yours. You may have a list. Some things on that list may be unresolved to the day of your death. But the resurrection of Christ will resolve all problems. And in his presence, there will be a fullness of joy that wipes out the list. And you're going to say, you know what? Resolved. Resolved. God pursues us to increase our faith. Sometimes he lets us in long periods of struggle so that we will trust him and seek him and glorify him to keep us in a humble place. So that we're not demanding Christians of God who get irritated with God and cynical towards God. But so that we might be people who say, you know what, I found God faithful. My life imperfect how it may be. God has been good. And God has been faithful. One writer said this. He said, the only thing that hinders God is our unbelief. Our unbelief in his goodness in difficult circumstances. Our unbelief in his power in impossible circumstances. The only thing that hinders God is unbelief. Read through the Gospels. Jesus couldn't do this there because of their unbelief. And some of us, I think, we wrestle with this. Some more than others. And God's aim is to encourage our faith. So that the confession of our heart could be, there is nothing too difficult for the Lord. Maybe you came here this morning and you're saying, God, can my heart be changed? 
Can I be forgiven? Can I be freed from my sin? Can I know the hope of heaven for sure in my heart? Perhaps you need to be born again by the power of God. You know what God says? Trust me. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Because many people live in doubt that their life can't change, that their past can't be forgiven. I have news for you. It can. Nothing is impossible for God. And if you would cry out to him today and say, Lord, I believe you died to pay the price for my sin, this sinner, he would change your life. He would forgive you and alter your eternal destiny for his glory and for your good. Father, as we conclude our study in your word this morning, 